0: Good evening, this is a Long Now Foundation event. My name is Stuart Brand. Thank you for overflowing (laughs) this wonderful theater. Um, I should mention that later this month we have another speaker, Craig Venter, who may also draw a large audience, especially because he's creating life these days. And in a sense, this is a second in a series of talks about thinking about the future only the speaker tonight says it's not the future that he talks about, but I'll bet that many of us interpret it that way. The last speaker was Paul Sappho, who is here tonight. Paul talked about techniques of forecasting, especially in technology, and sort of in the decade range of time. In a sense, he's looking at the future in a micro scale. In context of the Long Now Foundation, where we like to think of the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years, decades are pretty quick. But In that period of time, large events have a way of happening. And so the speaker tonight is talking about the macro scale and macro events. Please welcome Nassim Taleb.
1: So my talk is not definitely going to be about the future. I know nothing about the future. First of all, let me show you a picture of the book. The American Statistical Association has a special session on the black swan, and that's what they're going to do with my book in in August in Colorado. I have to show up to be yelled at. The the black swan, what is the black swan? First of all, it's not this wine. Let me explain to you that People, as part of our uh, like inability to think, to do second order thinking, most people buy me this wine not thinking that other people are aware of the Black Swan wine and the fact that I write Black Swan. So please, if I ever invite you to dinner or something, please for Christmas. I just had an email today from uh, students at Harvard. They want to piss off the professors by. Uh, by inviting me, of course, they, they, uh, uh, and they said we're going to have a reception, and, and, and they mentioned this wine, okay? So, it's not, it's undrinkable. It's really <laughs> undrinkable. All right, so what's the black swan? No, no, honestly, particularly the red wine. What's the black swan? Before the discovery of Australia, we had no reasons to believe that swans could be of any other color but white, or people in the old world. And effectively, there was a, uh, an expression in uh, medieval England, you'd sooner see a black swan than, say, for example, uh, it, was, it was like saying when pigs fly or when, uh, when, uh, when I don't know, when George Bush uh, does something intelligent or something. There was some immediately exception. So there was an expression until we saw Australia, and effectively, one the sighting of a single bird destroyed millennia of confirmation. So it was a, uh, posed as a logical problem by showing that there's no reason you cannot rule out a black swan because you haven't seen any. Okay. so My problem is not a logical question. My black swan is an event. It's not a bird. So, and it's an event that has three properties. The first property, it is hard to predict. Very difficult to predict based on information. Am I standing in the right spot? Okay. Based in an, on information before its uh, occurrence, prior information, based on historical information. You have here a sample of black swans. The most interesting one is the tie. Someone's going to forecast the future. We have to forecast that human beings 2,000 years away would constrict their blood supply with this device, for example, okay, and attend meetings. Okay, so that, that's very difficult to, to predict. The computer was a black swan. It changed the world. And nobody thought the computer could do anything. You know, it was initially used for combinatorics. I mean, the Watson from IBM did not think that this tool could have any use. The rise of religions, black swans, totally unpredictable. Uh, Harry Potter is a black swan. A lot of cultural phenomena are black swans. <laughs> the, to me, the most significant black swan, and the one I'm going to focus next for a few minutes, is the First War. The first war we had after Napoleon, we thought for about 100 years that the world became civilized and that you know, people became uh, conscious of, uh, of uh, the need for peace. And you had this devastating war, the biggest war, something that destroyed, uh, and of course it came in two volumes. You had volume one and then you had a sequel. So, So here we have black swans, events of low predictability, high consequence, but the most vicious part is the following one, is that before the fact they're extremely predictable, but after the fact you know what? We saw them coming. So, we have, this is what I call the retrospective dis- distortion, if these events are prospectively unpredictable, retrospectively predictable. Why? We even have disciplines to make us, to give us the illusion of understanding the world, you see? We have disciplines that make us misunderstand the world by giving us this illusion of predictability. History, for example, economics, other such uh, things, astrology. Okay, so we have, and what, what's the mechanism by which we sort of like have this illusion of understanding the world? The first one is what I call silent evidence. Before people think that the First War was predictable, particularly if you, I don't know if you have been to school, high school, and they uh, discussed the, the First War, it appears to result from tension between the UK on one hand Austria and Germany on the other, okay? So you think that there's tension that led to war. If you see tension, then you can predict war. But you're not looking at episodes of tension that did not lead to war. And there were a lot of episodes of tension before that that did not lead to war. And these episodes usually led to uh, uh, parties in Baden-Baden, you see, with opera singers, a lot of champagne, and they get drunk, right? Kings get drunk, plus they know each other, so they know how to do it. So you had to realize, that after the war, you think tension causes war, but if you're in a, in a champagne business, you realize you think tension causes uh, you know, drunkenness by kings when they make up, okay? So we have that problem. So let me g- uh, give you an, an illustration of this inability we have in looking at what I call the silent evidence, a pool of evidence that did not lead to the same result the comment made, this is recorded, no? That's even better. By a comment made by a publisher about the success of the black swan. And he was explaining it as follows, look, it has an animal and a color on the cover. That Explain the success. <laughs> now, okay, this is, so I went on, when I heard that, I said, okay, plane, I'm gonna take care of this guy. I looked on Amazon for how many books have animals and colors on their, or on their, in the title and on the cover that ended up flopping, okay? And you had plenty of them. I found 69 books with a black swan in their titles, okay? That, that were flops. You don't hear, if you don't hear about them, it's because they're flops. We're not looking at evidence. Plus, of course, you have permutation. Pink, uh, elephant, uh, uh, different colors, different animals, okay? So plenty, plenty of books like that that flopped. So this is what I call the cemetery of evidence. And for the, those of you interested in probability, <laughs> it's a big probability problem, that, 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 because we compute probability based on those who survived, probabilities of survival, not based on the pool of those who started. It, it's very, it's this, this is very endemic in the way we analyze the world, the way we understand information, the way we perceive information. Uh, Decision-making under uncertainty is completely dominated okay, with uh, this mistake of, of taking a pool of information and excluding the rest. So, it's so what I call silent evidence. Well, you have it on Wall Street. You look at the winners and say they have skills. You don't look at people who have the same sets of skills who ended up losing because these people don't write biographies. You see? They don't say how, how I lost a million dollars. They tell you how they made a million dollars. So, so you have that. So And then, but the problem is historians, you know, people on Wall Street, you can understand that they're not that smart, but historians, did not know that, okay, or did not deal with it empirically. Now, I happen to have spent 18 years as a trader, and I hated it. okay. But I stayed there because it was fun, particularly because you had economists around and people who make forecasts, and you could make fun of them. So there were some, some, uh, some, uh, some advantages to it. But one thing I discovered is that when you work with uh, and, and the beauty, the power of economics is that we have plenty of data. When you have data, you can do some, some uh, real analysis on the data that's completely unbiased because the data is going to be there, and you can throw numbers at, uh, at, at the computer. <coughs> so I looked at history to see if anybody did something like that, and I discovered that one of your future speakers, uh, Neil Ferguson, a brilliant man, and I recommend if you ever want to have lunch, fun lunch with someone, to call him up if, you know. Is good lunch, right? So, he is, and he uh, uh, wrote a paper showing that although we believe that the first war was predictable, the bond, the bond market, there's something called war bonds in the UK, and the bond, the UK bond, did not predict it. So it cannot be that predictable if the bond market, nobody told, you know, the bond market. Okay. So we have, we have prediction markets and stuff like that. So, so we realize now when you run, if you dig into history, how bad we are at predicting, how bad we are at seeing things, how bad our predecessors were at predicting. But a mechanism, of course, is called overcausation. I skip this because it's too complicated. But there's another, there's a, also, there's some psychological mechanisms involved that you make an actual prediction, you have the outcome. And then but this is uh, PowerPoint. This is, all right. this is Remembered predictions. <laughs> OK, upside down. What you remember, typically, that you, you remember what you remember having predicted is more consistent with what you observed. So you don't remember what you actually predicted, but you revise your memory of what you actually predicted continuously to make it consistent with current events. Not only. You do that with your prediction, but you also do that with your intentions, which is a big problem in, for us in adjusting, because you would realize that if we didn't have this effect, people would know that they're very bad at predicting. Uh, the economics departments would be empty or they would commit suicide or something like that. You would have no, no social science uh, uh, to speak of, OK? People would turn cab drivers or something. So you would realize that it is a psychological uh, bias now, let me talk about the black swan problem in, in history, OK, in, in, in philosophy. And, and, and I'm going somewhere with this, particularly with my next, uh, next work. The first gentleman up there on the left, <laughs> the one who's a little horizontally challenged, his name is Hume, OK? It's called Hume's problem, but it's not his problem. It's because he wrote in English. It's a great idea to write in English, then so it can be remembered by people who write in English that it's a Hume problem. Effectively, he took it from someone else. But Hume is worthy discussing because he was completely um, annoyed with the Black Swan problem. Completely annoyed with that problem of induction. It was not called Black Swan at the time. It was called the problem of generalizing from finite sample, or problem of induction. And what he did with it is very simple. He said, you know what, I leave it for the philosophical cabinet. And in real life, I can't deal with it. He was a party animal, and his reaction to the black swan problem is to become even more horizontal, you see. <laughs> Which he gained a lot of weight, and then he died, and he had a happy life in Edinburgh, in Paris and Edinburgh. Okay? So let's forget about Hume, <laughs> because he could be of no help. Except also to illustrate one thing that happened in philosophy is that increasingly philosophers became what I call domain-dependent. They're good at talking about a problem in a classroom and then they forget about it when they leave the classroom. And it's a bias. Statisticians, for example, don't understand statistics in real life. They're good in front of the blackboard. We know that from a lot of experiments. The way I discuss it in The Black Swan is I talk about that domain-dependence about the Reebok Club in New York where people go get in their gym clothes and then take the, the, the elevator <laughs> to the, to the Stairmasters and then get on the Stairmasters and log their 112 floors stories this, and, then go, and then stop and then take a log of it, okay? So we have domain dependence, people not recognizing it, something in the texture of real life. So let's forget about this guy. Next to him, there's a French guy, but the French don't know about him <laughs> or at least forgot about him, wanted to forget about him. He is a bishop called UA. And he dealt with the black swan problem by becoming extremely religious, He he not liking science. And of course, we had the enlightenment that became pro-science, and uh, with all the tragedies that we have coming from it. And uh, uh, so he is forgotten. He became very religious. The gentleman here is Al-Ghazel. He was the Arabic Arabic language. uh, I mean, uh, sorry, the Arabs call him an Arab. The the Persians call him a Persian. So uh, he's an Arabic language philosopher who uh, attacked the classical philosophers uh, by writing a treatise called uh, the uh, on the incoherence of philosophy a very famous treatise and he created Sufi Islam out of his thing so the black swan problem led these two gentlemen uh, to become extremely religious <laughs> now the one on the right is my hero or you know i think we don't really know if he existed or if you know but what he represents uh, would make him my hero is sextus empiricus He's not in philosophy books, not very common philosophy books. He, was, he had two things. He was a skeptical gentleman who phrased the problem induction just the way Hume later on repeated it, second century uh, BC uh, AD. And his second attribute, he was a doctor. So there was a school of medicine of decision maker under, makers under uncertainty called the empirical doctors who were damn good doctors. They did not like theories, did not like to generalize, did not like to extend into unobservables, okay? did not like to make an, you know, go from, from what they know to what they don't know. Extremely careful, they called themselves empiricists, They did not like to generalize. And these people were extremely successful. Unfortunately, uh, they were uh, completely, you know, medicine became intellectual rationalists, that we thought we understand human body. So these people were out of business for about uh, 15 centuries before medicine came back via the barbers, okay? Their ideas came. and if you guys are alive today, it's because these guys, or their ideas, or because barbers, not because of intellectual doctors, uh, the contribution of intellectual doctors. Finally, there's a gentleman, I'm sure you recognize him, particularly if you live in Berkeley, all right? <laughs> so this is uh, Karl Marx. All right, so uh, Karl Marx had this idea of wanting he wanted, you know, in his uh, thesis on um, uh, Feuerbach, he wanted to say, he said the philosophy, you know, was well, just talk, let's do something with it, unfortunately, but so his, his idea was to turn knowledge into action. So my idea is the exact opposite, how to turn lack of knowledge and lack of understanding into action. So this is pretty much my talk. And how not to be a turkey. In the black swan, this is my cousin who did this story of the turkey. In the black swan you have the turkey is, in my book, the black swan, the turkey is fed for a thousand days. Every single day confirms (coughs) to the turkey that that butcher is extremely, or the human race in general, is extremely uh, interested in its welfare <laughs> increasingly until, of course, when the black swan happens. I'm interested in the story of the turkey, one because it shows the black swan story, you know, and, and the consequences of inferring from observables. But the other one is that for the turkey, it's a black swan, but for the butcher, it's not a black swan. So black swan depends on the set of knowledge you have. Now, if we're going to have an earthquake here, I mean, you have to make contingencies, all right? If there's going to be an earthquake, the following slide will probably take care of, you know, what I have to say, all right? So make sure that you listen to the next slide because it summarizes my position on the black swan. There are two provinces, Mediocristan and Extremistan. And by by the way, I thank uh, Chris... um, Anderson for uh, suggesting the name Extremistan. I gave him the manuscript. I had a nerdy name, right? And he, he, he suggested something else, and it was Extremistan. I owe it to him, right? And so in Mediocristan, the following properties hold. Let's play this following thought experiment. Say we gather a thousand people randomly from the planet, okay? And you bring them here, you put them on a scale, all on a scale. Uh, Of course, well, but made in California scale, extremely well built, okay? And make sure you have one Frenchman, but not more, okay, because you have people standing next to him, all right? So on a scale, and make, so you have them, okay, and you weigh them, all right? Then try to imagine the heaviest human being you can think of who can still be called a human being, and add him or her to the scale have thousand people, how much of the total would he represent? How much? 0.3%, half a percent, 0.3%. I don't know, in California, but typically, in, you know, it's 0.3%. The, the heaviest human being on the planet would be nothing, but this from the total. So, in Miocrestan, the following rule holds. When your sample is large, exception can happen but they're not going to be consequential to the total. So this is a domain I call Mediocre stand. That domain, everything you've learned in statistics, or almost everything you've learned in statistics, applies to uh, Mediocre stand. And it's called the law of what? Large numbers. Okay. That as your sample becomes large, you're not the world. But also, it tells you you can diversify your portfolio. It tells you why insurance companies somewhat survive, although they don't quite survive that well. Okay. It tells you a lot of things about, OK, but without this supreme law of mediocrity, you would not have uh, statistics. Now, this is a problem, because if let's take the very same sample of 1,000 people, and you're going to have people from Rwanda in your sample, the very same sample, and try to think of the heaviest person you can think of who can still be called a person. No, sorry, of the wealthiest person you can think of who can still be called a person. He is not far from here, I guess, no? All right. He can still be called a person, but borderline, no? Okay. And add them to the sample. How much of the total will he represent? Okay, it'd be 100%. Okay. He was, what, $60 billion? The remaining 2,000 would be worth $2 million? All right. You have people from Biafran there. Okay, so the supreme law of extremistan tells you the following. Whenever you take a large sample, a small number of observations in that domain will represent a big share of the total. So you have two domains one that's dominated by the exception, extremistan, and one that's dominated by The general, by the mediocre, by the central, by a lot of people, the collective. One, the collective dominates the other one. Okay, very simple. Let's take, uh, uh, compare income. Dentists, for example, you will not find a dentist who makes more money than all the other dentists uh, combined. But in the book business, what's her name? Uh, The lady. She sells a lot of books, right? Okay. So in fact, you have what? You have 16,000 books published every year. In the English language, of the 16,000 books, uh, some years five books, five to 25 books, represent half the sales. So you have concentration in Extremistan, and we're moving from Mediocristan to Extremistan. If you're paid by the hour, you're in Mediocristan. Extremistan is—you guys are the, uh, the epicenter of Extremistan. Okay, you have uh, Google, you have stuff like that. It wouldn't have happened with a, you know, someone who makes sells sandwiches cannot become a Google overnight, okay? You cannot, if, if you have demand, you know, I'm, I'm sell sandwiches, and then you have demand for two billion sandwiches, I don't know what you're gonna have to do to deliver two billion sandwiches. But in, in, in the electronic and in information age, you can deliver, you know, put a zero on it, okay? So you have uh, different properties in stand. Fairness, social fairness, of course, is more prevalent in midoristan than extremistan of course you have more opportunities in extremistan but uh, or the illusion of opportunities in extremistan but you have a lot of unfairness because you have a winner take all effect in uh, extremistan and the metaphor I, the story i use in the black swan is that of Giacomo, an italian opera singer and they don't have a pavarotti yet pavarotti is minus 75 years old okay you don't have a uh, you don't have a way to store your voice the income of opera singers, okay, is not going to be massively skewed because if you in, you find yourself some little town and you're okay, right? So uh, uh, the guy from Milan isn't going to compete with you, and 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 then they discovered the uh, all these uh, uh, technologies, right, that destroyed Giacomo and and helped uh, Pavarotti, okay? So the the for, for example. Uh, I'm a, as, a, as a writer, uh, I'm an extremistan because every time one of you buys my book, I don't have to go to my hotel room and write it again. Right? But if I were making sandwiches, I'd have to do that. So the, 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 the properties of extremistan are quite nasty, in the sense that one observation can destroy the whole thing. One exception can destroy the whole thing. Economic life is from extremistan. The metrics we have are not adapted to extremistan. So take the companies in the U.S. You have, what, 12,000 listed companies. Between 100 and 200 companies represent half the capitalization. There's this rule of 80-20, Pareto's law, 80-20. It's not 80-20. Things in life are about uh, 0.05, 99.95. So this is, and this is an illustration of extremist stand versus uh, (coughs) mediocre stand. The inequalities. This is on the left is stand, on the right is extremistan, super stand. Here in the middle is on its way to super extremistan. You don't have that with height. So there are two kinds of randomness. This is two kinds of randomness, and, and they're not... They're, I mean, this is about the, the different. Even in California, you, 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 know, you, you, can, you know, I can have someone, say, walk in here eight feet tall. You guys won't be surprised. I would be surprised. But I can't see someone walking in here two billion feet tall. But it was wealth, with wealth, with random variables that belong to extreme, so they're not the same animals. Okay, so when someone says this is an approximation, when uh, there's something called the Gaussian curve, okay, it's a tool of extremis, of mediocrity. And there are other, m- most statistical names that you know belong to mediocrity. When they say their approximation, they're as much of an approximation as this plant approximate a human. Okay, there are. Large, qualitative differences. Now, let me turn on uh, <laughs> uh, philosophers. I, I, I get pissed off whenever I hear the word uncertainty principle, as if it has anything to do with uncertainty. For a lot of reasons. Number one, quantum mechanics is from mediocre stand. That's the first one. And second one, the uncertainty we have in physics, in that kind of uncertainty, in quantum mechanics is the least uncertain of all uncertainties because they average out, you see? Which is the reason why the stable has not has been here all this time, OK? I've been talking for 20 minutes, and the stable did not move. So the, the problem, to me, uncertainty when I hear someone is, I was trying to go to Lebanon, and there was, there was war, and there's absolutely no scheduled timetable for the end of the war, OK? There was when they killed Bhutto, it was not scheduled, all right? The, the subprime crisis. So the uncertainty we have is macro-uncertainty. It's so monstrous. And people waste their time talking about limits of knowledge here when, when, in fact when the limits of knowledge are not consequential. The limits on the right are consequential. Yet they don't think that these on the rights have real limits. That's why I get, I get very angry. Another thing, I call the word called the ludic fallacy. To try to beg people not to equate uncertainty with what? you see in games as a casino. Number one because casinos is from mediocre stand and the second one you don't know the real life. L- you know, you don't know the probabilities in real life. You don't know. In the casino the sterilized probabilities, most of what we learn, particularly in philosophy probably, comes from this stupid thing. So I called it ludic because I learned that once you use a Latin or Greek word for anything, you could charge a lot more for it. You learn from that. So use ludic. There's another reason, OK, because gambler's fallacy is something else that belongs to a Berkeley, uh, uh, former Berkeley professor, uh, Almas Versky and uh, Danny Kahneman. Did, uh, but anyway, that's the reason. But let me give you my Polish stroke. So every, I've written two uh, non-technical books. And almost every other line, I, I go on a rant against what I call you know the ludic fallacy or manifestation of known probabilities Till I received by mail a copy of the Polish translation of my book, and 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 there's a, there's a passage in it where I say has nothing to do with games. How I get angry when illustrators suggest a, a, a die to put die on my on. My. Look what what was it? Right? So that's my uh, Polish joke. That's that's how it looks like. Right? So. So, so my idea in the black swan is not like Hume to say, okay, let, let me get horizontal, all right, and forget about, um, you know, leave my anxiety about the problem of election. It's my idea in the black swan is to try to get not to be the turkey in real life, try to get out of trouble. So I think the mediocre stand, extremist stand, is a good start. You worry about the black swan in extremist stand because it's consequential. So, already know how to worry about the consequential. And people keep telling me, oh, you, tell, you worry too much, you cross the street. I tell them, yes, my idea is, unlike you, I don't want to cross the street blindfolded. Because it looks like we have a psychological problem. We tend to be chicken when we know about the risks and overreact. And most risk-taking in society, and this you can see through experiments, are taken, not because we're particularly uh, cur- courageous and have a lot of bravado, and, uh, and, and, but know the odds. No, it's because we don't know the odds, or we don't know what's going on, we don't know we're taking these risks. Think of bankers, okay? They're the most incompetent probably prof- uh, profession in history because they've been kept up by the governments. But the bankers, all right, they take a lot of risks. They think they're not taking risks. If they knew the risks they're taking, they, wouldn't, they would change. They would become plumbers or something else, you see. So not, they don't have the temperament. So it's not, so a lot of people take risks because they're blindfolded, not because they are conscious or they see what they're doing. <clears throat> this is classical in finance is that you see frequently the Dear Investor's letter when someone does well for about, and then every single metrics. Every single metric in uh, economics will give them low risk profile for 12 years. Right? And sure enough, they, at the end, they have that, you know, that letter. It's usually a very standard letter it's, Dear investor, surely these events are as, as much of a surprise to us as they are to you. <laughs> and, and then, OK, and, but you know, I saw a letter sent by some folks in 1998 who had a pseudo Nobel in economics. And I saw the one sent recently. With subprime, there was no linguistic evolution. <laughs> the same thing, right, dear investor. So this is what I've been fighting. Is this is a typical illustration of the the, the problem of reduction I want to try to avoid. This is what you see in finance, or in, in, in anything. Where you're going to have this is a performance. It's going to be dominated, variation dominated by this is 20 years by small number of observations. Always have that. Yet people chit chat about small variations all the time. Uh, I was talking to to, uh, Ferguson and and I got in my head that maybe I should start thinking about history. So I went to the bookstores to fill up with books of history, historiography. We're thinking about doing some way of dealing with randomness and history by by comparing Medyorkistan to uh, extremistan. And if you were to do a quantitative history, like simplify history to a simple uh, stochastic process, that would be quantitative. On top you would have a mediocre stand-type history. At the bottom, you have an extremist-type history. Where most, you don't have a lot of moves, but guess what? When you have a move, it's going to be abrupt. So most of the time, nothing happens. And then you have big jumps. History jumps. It doesn't crawl. And that was a statement I made in The Black Swan. And against everything that was known in historiography, la longue durée, all that stuff. Next, let me talk about the experts. This is going to be in a subway in London. Okay, ignore experts. Okay, some experts, not, not other experts. The uh, not all experts. All right, and we're going to see. Yeah, no, not not your, uh, not the plumber. All right, plus you need the plumber. Okay, let me start with the mathematicians. All right, I don't know I'm sure there are plenty of mathematicians here. Enough, so be, a few would be insulted. This is probably what I would like to do. Okay, so. I spent some time working with mathematicians of randomness and, of course, I made the following discovery one day when a gentleman was giving a lecture of why mathematics were important in society and he was going was explaining how traffic lights were optimized and so on for so mathematics is great and I thought about it, what if we wrote an anti-history of mathematics, number one, of, where mathematics has not been useful to society, extremely destructive, and the second one is instances in which society did not need mathematics. So mathematics plays a very small role. But owing to self-serving biases, they tell you what they do for you. So don't tell you what they don't do for you. It's like politicians. So we have the feeling that they're important. Of all the space of possible equations that we have, the one mathematicians can handle is minute. So what, we do, what they do is they want something they can prove that the number of Things we can prove or use theorems for is so small that mathematics is is, is, is very, whatever can be mathematized will be suspicious. Now, we were spoiled in physics. They tell you, look, it works in physics. We were spoiled in physics. Although, you know, there are a lot of things in physics that have not been mathematized. Uh, But how about medicine? How about economics? How about all these other fields? Okay? They give you, this is called a confirmation bias, like politicians, they do. Tell you what they did for you, not what they didn't do for you. Conf- by confirmation is uh, trouble for a lot of reasons. Uh, uh, first, let me show you this slide. This is, uh, you know, do you see it well? Yeah, a bunch of nuns, okay? And uh, I think they know. The, the mathematicians know about uncertainty. The knowledge of uncertainty resemble the knowledge of these ladies. About nightlife and fun and partying—you know how to party, right? <laughs> honestly, right? So this—and and having spent nine years working with mathematicians—till till finally I, I, I gave up and uh, teaching, um, uh, creating, trying to create uh, anxiety in math PhD students. And the problem is that it's very mechanistic. Now, it, so there is a big conflict between probability, where you're dealing with non-observables, and mathematics. That requires mechanistic mind look, that looks for certainties, and most of the mathematics we have for randomness is going to be then focused on the ludic fallacy, on uh, mediocrity, things that can be easily mathematized, and that's a tragedy. It is a tragedy because uh, it, it, it is a tragedy because you have this big wedge between. Uh, uh, practice and, and, and this perception of, 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 uh, of reality, okay? coming from mathematics. The other problem we have... <laughs> okay, I'll make it clear in the next few slides, is that we tend to tunnel when we project the future. So you tend to... you'd like to tunnel, so you like to use someone's tools to tunnel further, because you, otherwise you have anxiety. So when you project the future, you project something extremely narrow that resembles the projection of the present, even uh, uh, less crazy than the present, okay? And, and of course, you don't realize, you know, we're not crazy enough to imagine the future. I mean, events that take place, well, if I discussed these black swans in, in here, uh, 20 years before they happened, I'm sure that, uh, that someone would have called an ambulance and would have Taking me away because these scenarios are crazy. Reality delivers much crazier scenario than than our mind can imagine. So there is a tunneling helped by mechanistic tools. But why 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 do we do that? Why do we uh, uh, produce uh, these uh, uh, measures of uncertainty? Why do we like to produce these measures of uncertainty? Well, we have a genetic, we have whatever we have that we need to reduce our anxiety by using metrics. There's nothing wrong with talking about uncertainty. There's something wrong about talking about uncertainty to satisfy. Uh, take Novocaine or, take some, or have a drink. Okay, it, It's better than produce a forecast if you want to lower your anxiety. <laughs> and we'll see later when I talk about the expert, breaking down the expert line. When I was uh, on Wall Street, the fun was to look at projections made by economists. <laughs> you see, lawyers are very smart. You can't catch them because they're slick, and they always manage to give you some vague answer about anything. Economists, they give you a forecast. Well, you go process it. If you have a computer, you have coffee, and you have a trainee, you can process the forecast <laughs> to see if, if, they, they, if they work better than cab drivers, and they don't work better than cab drivers. And there is a, 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 a the psychological explanation. is The forecast got worse since invented this. Called the sheet. in the past you had to sweat to make a forecast now you can just extend the cell you drag and drag and, you extend the cell so you go to year 2020 2043 you go as many centuries as you want it doesn't cost you much in the past it was it was labor so the other so there is this is framing okay typically uh, and once you see it on a piece of paper you start believing in it it's uh, what we call framing a person who really uh, caught these people with their pants down is Philip Tetlock, who's supposed to be here tonight. And, and uh, Phil Tetlock did process all these, and, and of course, we did the psychology of it. When I met Phil, I just realized that, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, we know all the psychological biases. But I then realized that there was a, uh, a very simple way to figure out which domains we can forecast and which domains resist forecasting. And guess what? It's mediocre stand versus extreme stand. Domains that have the property, the randomness, is mediocre stand property. We are good at forecasting. The astrolog- the, you know, When we deal with stars and so on, our errors are Gaussian. Okay, and this is what I discovered, the, the first application, is measurement errors in, in, in you know, uh, uh, astronomy. Right? So, but when we're talking about anything social, anything where one single observation can have massive consequences, we're not good at forecasting. So mediocre stand, extremist stand. Uh, there is a, a, a tableau made by a gentleman called Chanteau, right, where it uh, looks like the know-what versus know-how uh, uh, distinction works, like a souffle chef, you know that he's an expert. But an economist, I'm not sure. Or if they expert, definitely addressing and looking like an expert, but not expert at delivering a service that they claim to, to you know, that's what I call the for expert or pseudo expert. So the, uh, now, now why do we listen uh, uh, to these people? Well, the first one is, um, there's an old, uh, as you know, I'm sure you all know it, don't ask this gentleman, all right? Uh, Ernie, all right, don't ask a barber if you need a haircut, okay? So if you can't ask someone, it's a profession, so there's a self-serving aspect of professions. And the second one is we sent to like empty suits, which allowed me, you know, to formulate the following rule, never take advice from someone wearing suit and tie, it works. It lines up perfectly to the mediocre stand-extremist stand distinction. It lurks, okay? It, it lines up to the four expert. Now, there's a lesson. This is Robert Trivers, figured out a, a, a something, and it was very interesting. That was before the invasion of Iraq. That if you have any plans to make war, to engage in war, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. We're not good at predicting wars because we didn't have many wars in our genetic uh, um, heritage. We did a lot of raids, raids and pillaging. We're good at it, we're humans. And, and, and he, he, uh, he showed how primates are very good at invading territory, killing all the males, and all these kinds of things. So it looks like simple domains. Again, the errors are from Mediokristan. We're good at forecasting. Complex domain, we don't understand. We don't have the right intuitions. The link between action and consequence is not as visible. Errors are, can be monstrous and dominated by extremes. So, uh, uh, so again, wars are from, since Napoleon, wars have been more and more from extremism. Yeah, for example, if you want to invade Granada again, go ahead, no problem. right? Okay, if you want to invade China, you're going to have problems. All right? So you see the difference between, uh, uh, between simple and more complex domain. And, of course, we're going to take some advice from Yogi Berra, who said the future ain't what it used to be. Okay. <laughs> Big philosopher random, and he understood the point about how we're gliding more and more into some form of concentrated disorder. One, uh, 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 one of the things I discuss in my next book, I studied religion a little bit. I don't believe in beliefs, by the way. Right? I don't believe that we humans use beliefs to act. I think beliefs have some other purpose. But the problem that I find very inconsistent, and I don't know if some of Dawkins' friends or these guys are here, I find extremely inconsistent to be suspicious of the bishops, okay? Uh, here, this is an orthodox service, because I'm orthodox. So, be suspicious of the bishop, and be a sucker when, when it comes to the stock market, okay? or listen to the economists. I don't understand what metrics, double standard, you're using. Okay? when You know uh, uh, Dawkins was saying that these, guys, these people have double standards. He's talking about postmodernists. He said anybody riding a plane to go to a conference okay, when they doubt the laws of physics is a hypocrite. To me, anybody invested in the stock market who is critical okay, of religion is a hypocrite. Okay. <laughs> You either I mean, that's my point, is there's nothing wrong about being critical of religion, but you've got to go all the way. So what happens is our skepticism is domain-dependent. And we're going to test it. There's a very easy metric for me to test skepticism. It took me a while to figure it out. You show things to see if people see false patterns or not. And we're going to be testing. I have a little lab in London, a London business school with Dan Goldstein. And we're going to test to see if religious people are more fooled by randomness, outside religion, and vice versa. OK, so it is, it is a problem, substituting religion with CNBC stock and some... You know that the, st- the stock, mar- stock market analysts, OK, they're worse than nothing. <laughs> a lot worse than nothing, OK? So there is an inconsistency there. And, and, and incidentally, I figured out one thing, is that medicine, you know that medicine for a long time you had an expert problem in medicine. You still have some expert problem in medicine. Medicine killed more people than it saved, particularly in the late 18th century. Uh, late uh, 19th century, okay, till discovery of penicillin, okay. and Why? Because of something I call the illusion of control, and if by going to a doctor, by going to a doctor, you, 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 you know, you wanted to do something, going to a doctor to do something, you hurt yourself. So going to a, a, the temple of Apollo, or something like that, or any form of religion, so long as it takes you away from a doctor, is going to be beneficial for you, all right? So that's the idea of religion. People don't. That's, I have a notion of religion that sort of conflict with the rest. To illustrate what I mean by illusion of control, illusion of control is when you go to the casino and, and you see people wanting to throw so get a high number on a the die, they throw it hard, okay? And they want a low number, they throw it soft, okay? <laughs> and this is so. This is another. Uh, this is a council of economic advisors with. Uh, his eminence there, they're all there. So, And this is an exercise of illusion of control, okay? All right, so now we're out of the fun section. How, how many more minutes do I have? Sorry, and let me get technical here, sorry? 10 minutes, okay. All right, so I, now let me get into the, 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 the boring section, all right? This may cause a lawsuit, I hope. The gentleman here, I'm here, I'm debating him tomorrow. <laughs> Very nice gentleman, I'm not attacking him, I'm attacking a statement. Let me talk about probability for a while. So it's going to get more technical, it's called boring. Sec- if you want, you can leave and come back for the drinks. All right. So this gentleman made the following statement. <laughs> he said, these events that we saw last summer should happen every 10,000 years. Actually, we had three days in a row, events that happen every 10,000 years. Uh, if you look at the gentleman, you see that he's so considerably—he's considerably younger than ten thousand years. So therefore, where is he getting his probabilities from? Okay, not from personal experience. He definitely is getting his probabilities from where he's getting them from. From a theory, right? uh uh-huh. Aha. So where do you theory from something in philosophy? We would call that a priori. There is an a priori. It doesn't come from any form of empirical observation or anything. And I don't know if 10,000 years ago we were trading. We don't have the records of what they were doing then. And if they were trading how sophisticated they were, what computers they used. So we have a problem with claims made about small probabilities. Because the smaller the probability, the less observable it is going to be. The more you're going to rely on theory, and theory is going to be fragile. Let me add something to that problem that problem, I call it the telescope problem, okay? What matters is not the probability. What matters is the, imp- the event. So if I have a small probability of losing a million dollars, okay, I don't care about the probability, I care how much I lose, all right? So what matters is if you, you worry more if you have a small probability of being on a plane that crashes, and if you have a small probability of of not having an umbrella under the rain, okay? So it's not the probability that you care about, it's the probability times the event, the magnitude of the event. The pair, probability times pi times lambda. The the problem we witness here is that the smaller the, the probability, the more confident they seem to be about that pair pi lambda, when in fact it's the most unstable. Because the smaller the probability, the more error you're going to have, the higher the error you're going to have in the estimation of that probability. You see? Necessarily, if you have a smaller number of observations, you're going to have a larger error. So, therefore, anybody talking about small probability, doesn't know what he's talking about, literally. Okay, Or they're not talking about probability. They're talking about something else. I don't know, a religion, or whatever it is. Okay, They're not talking about probability, all right? So, this is a problem. Even you know the, the, that we have because that pair, the, the higher, the, that, that triangle, I call it pi lambda, becomes a lot more random. I mean to repeat the point, a thousand-year flood. Okay, requires a lot more than a thousand years observation. Okay, but a thousand-year flood is much more devastating than a hundred-year flood. You see, so this is this is a problem we have with probability. If I don't know the Federal Reserve, if you pay him a visit, let him know. Okay. Which brings me to prediction markets. Very quickly, I'm going to go over the boring section here. People use the, some idiotic statement that we're good at predicting number of be, uh, be, uh, collectively better than individually, co- uh, you know, that we know single, since Galton, number of uh, uh, you know, beans in a jar. Okay? They infer that we can predict sociopolitical events. The first statement, you can see the difference. These are from Mediocristan your errors are not going to be monstrous, okay? the number of jelly beans here. The second one is that when you predict probabilities, it's much easier than predict total contribution of the impact, you see? If you have you know, a small probability of having Bill Gates or super Bill Gates, it makes a big difference. Prediction markets, we may be able to predict prediction markets. Because it's a binary event. There's no consequence. It's just yes or no. You see? So whether it's extremistan or not extremistan it may be okay. But even then, you cannot rely on the probability. Uh, using these prediction markets as probability, look at today. Today, Hillary Clinton, is, uh, uh, she, was, she was like, uh, uh, what? She had 70% probability of, you know, she was trading at 70%. Now she's trading at 50%. So these probabilities change all the time. How can you rely on them as indicators? Like people think that probabilities are like the temperature. We go have someone from MIT and two Russians come in, and we're going to measure it and get the number. Okay? It's like temperature. It's not like temperature. We don't measure it. Okay? We estimate it. And even collectively, we're not better at it. And there are things that even collectively, we'll never be able to get because their properties are way too complicated. So this is the problem I have with using prediction markets. We can use prediction markets to predict how many uh, uh, car crashes you're going to have on a highway, maybe not for something more complicated than that. Second point I have with models versus practice is the story, that metaphor of the ice cube, that I discussed in the Black Swan. I just realized, I tried to read the Black Swan because I was bored and I didn't like it, but I found that that section needed some expansion, right? So, because it's, I realized, hey, you know what? It's a good idea to discuss. I mean, the, the, if I, the problem of most theorists problem of universities is you go from theory to practice. The degrees of freedom from theory to practice are considerably narrow, small. The reverse is monstrous. So let me give you this metaphor. If I leave a small piece of ice cube on the floor, (coughs) okay, you can easily get uh, someone in second year physics students to write the equation to tell you how to predict how that ice cube will melt, okay? It's a very simple Thing. A second-rate student could do it, right? You? No? someone from Boston that is can do it. Okay, so the uh, yeah, so you can you can uh, you can predict. So, but now conditional on seeing water on a floor, is it easy to reverse engineer the ice cube? No, you have an infinity of ice cubes, different shapes. That can ha- would have generated. This is exactly going from theory to practice versus practice to theory. Given something you observe, the observable, a generative observable, and un- okay, would be a theory. You have an infinite number of theories that can do that. Particularly when we are dealing with nonlinearities. When, particularly when it is nonlinear. Okay. In a nonlinear, way, very, let me give you this uh, metaphor: the solution of problem induction, the most intelligent piece, probably piece. Uh, the, uh, of work done on the problem of induction since Sextus Empiricus. If I have have these series of dots up there, I ask you to extend them in the future, okay? With a linear model, this is one, step one, okay, you can extend them from 20 years into 80 years. If it's linear, you just take a ruler and extend it in the future, you agree? Now you're assuming it's a linear model. Aha. But if it's, but it turns out to be nonlinear. How do you know from that part of the sample? Okay. So a linear series of points can generate something nonlinear. Or it could be what we have in the fourth uh, graph. So the statement is as follows. There's one and one line that could connect series of dots, so you have uniqueness. This is why people like linear models. But when we go into a nonlinear model, whatever you see can be explained by an infinite number. Of nonlinear theories or nonlinear equations. It's infinite. So you realize the explosion of degrees of freedom, which is to say that, okay, we have in the nonlinear world, I'm sure someone's gonna ask me about basins of attraction, chaos theory, and stuff like that, and I'll talk about it. I'm definitely certain from experience that someone's gonna ask me about them in, in this session. So this is why I don't extend, I don't deal with the future. The other problem is with power laws, okay? You only can look at them qualitatively. What we call fractal self-similarity. Extremistan, as you can say, is, has one structure, which is a fractal self-similarity, the one that was you know, similar to the geometry of Mandelbrot. The problem is that reverse engineering, the parameters, guess what? They're all over the map. It's almost impossible to, you can just deal with it qualitatively, but qualitatively we can do very well. So let me conclude here with my what to do or what not to do. I was in Athens uh, about uh, two months ago and I spoke for about an hour. And uh, the uh, person uh, told me, Yeah, we well, told us, uh, you know, now what, what should we do? I, I, I had an acute state, uh, uh, I entered a state of rage, you know. <laughs> that was not, you know, really. I told him, I've been talking for an hour, I've been telling you what not to do, and you don't count it. The guy was a consultant, and don't count it. As as advice, we don't. Negative advice, to me, is vastly more important than positive advice, but people don't think it is important. (laughs) Just like if you go to the bookstore, you can only learn from people's mistakes. You don't have how I failed in life. These people, cemetery of evidence, don't (laughs) publish their books. Okay, see how I made a million. million, These 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 can be accidents, but there's regularities. You see the Ten Commandments. Okay, except for. for a couple, I think their negative advice and look, they stuck. Okay, even even almost the adultery part. I mean, they they it did work. So advice, negative advice tends to work. Okay, compared to positive advice. Okay, so I tell you what not to do. All right, what not to do is not to rely to use forecasts in a very qualitative way, not to use them for anxiety relief. I Told you what not to do throughout. So only a charlatan would go in and say ten points. I'm trying to resist it because I do not want to be a business uh, strategy type charlatan with you know, 10 steps to success and how to become a millionaire. Right? So this is why I, I hate it. And people tell me, like, I was in Washington, and, 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 and someone said, well, i got a forecast. My job is to forecast, okay, in, in economic life. I looked at her, I told her, well, the only thing I can tell you is I can strongly recommend you get another job, all right? We can't, I mean, I, can't, I cannot go in and solve people's problems. I'm not a dentist, you know, you give me your teeth and i tell you what the problem is. I, I have a general worldview that is, and to fit my worldview, I'm a skeptic. I'm a skeptical empiricist. I cannot, okay, tell people what to do, all right? I can tell people, you have to extend tails. So Here, I'm in Silicon Valley, I can tell you very easily, don't read Harvard Business School papers, typically, because I find a mistake, common mistakes in, among all of them, they take like the biotech all right, industry, and they say, well, you know what, only one company makes money. If you take out bio, uh, Amgen or uh, the other Tech, you know they don't make money. But Of course, if you take out the lottery winner, the lottery is you know, So, they, they, okay. the other technique is, in a black swan domain, conventional metrics of looking at a pool of results as indicative of future results is inherently flawed without extending like biotech of course is not going to work okay in small samples okay because the small sample, the past does not have a cure for boldness, for example. And I know a few here who would definitely uh, make the company rich, okay, if there is a cure for boldness. All right? I'm not the only one. No, there's some, I see some <laughs> shining uh, 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 things in the crowd. So there is, so extending into what you don't know, okay. So some industries like biotech, venture capital, stuff like that, you extend the right tail. In other words, if, if a black swan happens, it can only benefit them. Insurance company, if a black swan happens, it can only hurt them. So it's a very simple rule of thumb of not trusting returns for banks okay, and underestimating returns for venture capital firms. Stuff like that. Small rules of thumb. Uh, also, of course, not take advice from someone wearing a tie and stuff like that. Okay? <laughs> the, and I'm sure people will ask me for more, so I'll leave it for the Q&A. Another thing I did discover in the black swan is that if we have small probabilities that have dominated our planet. Okay. Therefore, there got to be survival advantages to those who have long memory. Sure enough, there's a paper showing why metrom- you know that elephants are matrimonial; the ladies uh, dominate, and then old ladies are kept around. Guess why? Because they remember droughts. They remember what happened in 1906, all right, and where they had to go to find water. <laughs> okay. So remember rare events. Okay, so there is, and 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 societies have used that for a long time. Okay, Senate, for example, senatus. You know, it means an old person. Okay, that's why they have a council of elders. Have some. You know, this is why I try to look older than my age with my gray beard. Right, have council of elders. But even in Arabic, the term sheikh means an old person. Right. So there is a value. In society, for keeping around people who are not productive, simply as advisors on rare events, if that happens, where to go? Okay. So this is locally. Uh, there is something what I call uh, uh, knowledge without a cause. Okay, these people have a lot of knowledge, they don't have theories. in, 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 in economics, we have the exact opposite. For example, uh, we have crises like the subprime happened. Uh, we had the same one 18 years ago. Or, or a little less, okay, nineteen ninety, eighteen 1990, 18 years ago. Wow, time flies. It, it, we had the same one, but nobody remembers it because they simplify to models, so they don't store they, store, they store the theories instead of storing the facts, which is what I call erudite empiricism, as opposed to, without, without inductive generalization, just store the facts. And uh, uh, theories destroy that. And uh, finally, this, okay, leads to, um, I was talking about them. Precautionary principle? No, it's not precautionary. Super precautionary principles it is giving some respect to the oldest member okay, of the planet, the planet itself. Okay. Uh, there are some rules. Don't mess with complex systems because we don't understand them. We don't see a link between. We don't understand. I mean, what's going on? And the planet is smarter than us. That's the topic of my next book: is how we're a lot better at doing than knowing. Okay, the difference between explicit and implicit knowledge, and uh, we're better at heuristics than theorizing. Theories, we do that for entertainment, I think, and then we give ourselves the illusion. Like universities, if you look at the track record, uh, they're a lot better at uh, a PR, telling you what they've got, than at really doing things. It's sort of like you take birds, you lecture them how to fly, and then they fly, and you explain, you know, the miracles of aerodynamics. Okay, so the the uh, so we have. I mean, of course they contribute, but not. We are a lot better at doing. (coughs) Why? Because of evolution. And this is, okay, uh, 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 this is the works of evolution, right? What we have on this planet. The result of things that have been longer than us, and it knows a lot more than we do. When I go back to the medical empiricists, these people were hyper skeptical. But get what? One thing they did is they respected tradition and age and age old practices, even if they didn 't make sense to them, in other words, you had to have the default is to go with what was done rather than you needed to override the default, likewise, it leads me to hyper conservative you know uh, Approach to ecology. You don't have to explain why you don't want to pollute. You don't want to explain. Come up with some theories, particularly if the theories can be fragile. To um, uh, someone like me, who can go in and show how you can, uh, you know, uh, 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 show errors in in all these forecasting models to justify not 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 polluting. Okay. Thank you very much. I think I'm done. I I said a lot of things. Crammed them in uh, 50 slides. And uh, thanks. So I, I stay here.
0: Can we uh, get the house lights up a little bit so the speaker can see the audience and we can see each other? Um, say a little more about the sequence of events in your trilogy. The first book, the book that you mostly talked about tonight, and, and the next book. Yeah, no, the first book is not an interesting book.
1: It's called "Fooled by Randomness," but it is I wrote it, you know, like half uh, uh, when I was half uh, trading, half uh, you know, uh, on a tra- when I wanted to kill time, and it was not very deep, so I managed, you know what, I managed to rewrite the same book with the black swan. Nobody realized, no, a publisher said, oh, it's the same book, and I explained to them that people go to church every Sunday to listen to the same story, all right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, the, uh, so, I rewrote wrote it in a more intelligent way with the second one, but, but uh, and, and now I'm rewriting the whole thing a third time, completely differently, as I said, focusing on, uh, um, uh, in, uh, like it's, I'm taking empiricism to the limit. Uh, knowledge without a cause. I don't believe in knowledge, and I'm discovering things. After the Black Swan, I, I met a lot of people who, who uh, uh, gave me evidence that things like in the clinical trials, you think that that's what the person is looking for. In fact, no, they they retrofit their story, and and and, and stuff like that. So my next book is going to be a little more dr- drastic. Drastic, so. yeah because I'm gonna make more enemies. Now I already have only economists as enemies. The rest, this is a crowd that's not very hostile. I I was, uh, tomorrow the crowd is gonna be very hostile. Anybody in finance typically is, is, I mean they have this, uh, uh, Phil Tetlock observed, he says there's a huge cognitive, um, uh, how do you call it? Uh, 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 Dissonance, cognitive dissonance listening to me because either uh, uh, I'm right and what they're doing is wrong or I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I got to be a nut, right, or something like that. So they, they, of course, they go for a second option. So, but they, at the same time, they don't feel comfortable. They say, "Well, I have no argument against it." So, uh, um, so the next time, I think anybody in academia, or a lot of people in academia, will have this, uh, uh, will have this, uh, uh, you know, animosity
0: towards me, which would be more fun. <laughs> yeah. What enemies of the current work surprised you? Enemies of what, sorry? Of the current work. What, who was scandalized by this book that surprised me. Well, economists, because I explain.
1: N- number one is I, I use uh, arguments, very simple arguments, against uh, uh, the science of economics by, by, by explaining that they're dangerous to society and stuff like that. And, uh, and uh, the, they're forecasting we rely on it. And, and I say, okay, if you go to church, it's a lot better than... than listen to them, uh, they, they, they got angry. And also there are other things I did with Mandelbrot. We went into a, a, a full-pronged attack on the economic establishment by showing that the statistics are, uh, are, are off. And we went after the Nobel. And now we're going hunting uh, down the Nobel committee. Okay? So, so, we, we, so these people are not very happy when we call them charlatans. But um, explain to me what makes them different from astrologists. There's no empirically they're the same, but El process is far more elegant, right? So that was when we used these arguments, they got very angry. Ah, I, I, let me tell you the funny story: is I was in Paris at Ecole Polytechnique where I was speaking, and I stood up and at some point I got emotional, right? And they were all there, all mathematicians almost. And I stood up and said, using these techniques, typically the bell curve to measure risks, is not even silly. It's Immoral, immoral, I said, so, so shouting, right? There's a gentleman who's from the French, uh, stood up, I'm a member of French Academy of Science, and so on, it was a scandal, so I had to stop. Uh, that, was, uh, that was my, my best uh, episode.
0: All right. right. <laughs> All right, uh, a bunch of quick questions here, maybe we get quick answers. Uh, first one's from Sequoia Hacks, where is Sequoia Hacks? Is that a real name? <laughs> Probably not. Um, what's going on? at the threshold between extremistan and mediocre stand. Uh, OK. The,
1: the, the, that's that's a, a, an interesting question. A lot of people have dealt with extremistan mediocre stand somewhat in statistical physics, where they, you know people talk about critical point. Per Bach spoke about uh, criticality that generates uh, power laws. That's not my point. My point is very simple that pi lambda representation causes me to assume extremistan as an extension of unobservables. So it is epistemological. I'm, I mean, in the end, I'm nothing but a philosopher, okay? And I'm a skeptical philosopher. I cannot use, I cannot make a statement about transition points. The other uh, a statement I'd like to make is a statement about dynamics versus statics. People are very good at trying to explain things using dynamics because you get tenure by showing complicated mathematical paper. There have been a lot of papers on the dynamics that generate and Starting with Yuli, uh, about bacterial populations, something called preferential attachment by Zipf and um, Simon, right? Uh, by a lot of papers showing, you know, showing uh, rich get richer, uh, uh, big gets bigger, uh, Matthew effects, the poor gets poorer because he gives his money to the rich. Okay, now all these models are very simple, okay, but they don't explain the world because the Google guys, right, came out of nowhere, and the big guys tend to die. Okay, so they can't explain why the S and P 500 today only 75 companies survive the last 40 years. Okay, if big gets bigger, we should have one big company uh, uh, on Earth. Okay, so what you have to do to improve these models is start adding a twist that makes companies go bust when they get very big. And uh, come back to my nonlinearity. Now we have infinity infinity of models and much smaller set from which to calibrate, and it's going to be difficult.
0: Um, Here's an internet question from Mike. Uh, will the internet and internet connectedness in general bring us more toward winner-take-all extremistan or, with its empowerment of the amateur, more toward mediocristan? Uh, uh, we're unfortunately going towards winner-take-all extremistan uh, more and more.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that. This is, uh, this, is, this is life. But it's a very destructive uh, extremistan. Uh, when I looked at the, 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 what the internet has created, is at the same time that it created a, a winner-take-all effect, it created a pool of future winners coming to destabilize the top. And that's a long tail of my friend uh, Chris, who got me invited here, or I mean, Actually, no. Philip Tetlock got you invited. Philip Tetlock, right? OK, thanks. The, uh, um, the, uh, the, the, the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, having a pool of people destabilizes. So the dynamics are even more complicated. So you have an extremist stand. It's not the same winner every time. Now, the, look at it. Look how short was the road from zero to Alta Vista back to zero. Okay? And now it was from zero from College Dorm to Google back to, uh, no, sorry. I, <laughs> the, Sell. The, so you understand what I mean by the stable, uh, the unstable. It's extremist stand more and more and more and more unstable. Do you ever buy stock? No. I thought so. I mean, I buy, uh, OK, but let me tell you the idea. A portfolio, for someone who doesn't understand anything about the world, the statement I can make is have the maximum amount of zero risk securities and a small amount and maximum risk securities. So I have a medium risk portfolio, but I'm not making any claim okay, as to my tail beyond, say, my loss. So I have 7% invested, that's all I can lose, all right? So I'm not making a statement on future. You know, and, and uh, let me tell you one thing in finance. When they say they can tail events, can measure tail events. When they say a risk can measure the risk, past risks don't predict future risks. That's the first thing that shocked me. Past risks do not predict future risks. So you don't know. I mean, this is all verbiage uh, about stock market
0: uh, uh, measures of risk. Um, Speaking of stock markets, we had a question here from Oliver. How do you explain Warren Buffett's record?
1: Oh, this uh, has come back to my picture of uh, of. uh, the problem of survivorship bias or the problem of a cemetery, okay? I have my watch, even if it's you know, a broken clock, can be right twice a day. All right, so if you have a lot of investors, you necessarily, it's a necessity to have a Warren Buffett simply out of luck. Now, I'm not, I don't mean he is lucky. I'm saying I have, I'd like to withhold judgment. The only person I think, the only two people I think who are not lucky, there's no luck, I'm not saying he's necessarily lucky. I say I don't know, because randomness. You have so many people trading, you necessarily will produce someone like that. The only two people are uh, Soros, but don't tell him, right? And then there is uh, the other gentleman from Renaissance. Okay, Simon. Simon. He's not. He's not lucky. Beyond. uh, He is. He is definitely. But what he does, he's not. He's not speculator. He's just uh, like some Walmart stock. You know, taking liquidity from one market to the other. There's no exposure to uh, uncertainty in his models.
0: So from Max, the question is, what does extremist dance say about the power of the individual to influence events? Uh,
1: unfortunately, uh, it says two things. It's like the same thing as a butterfly. You know the story of the butterfly. A butterfly in India flapping its wings. That's, that's a metaphor for a chaos theory, OK? Can generate a, uh, uh, you know, a snowstorm in a Tahoe, OK? But at the same, but how many butterflies are there in India, right? How many things like butterfly in India or uh, snails in uh, Guatemala, right so you have a lot of small things okay so the uh, uh, i don 't know the problem that you have is at the individual level it's a winner take all effect, so you have to realize that you have a huge decoupling between skills. Skills are necessary. I'm not saying they're not necessary they're necessary, but can lead you nowhere in extremist stand, dentists any medium-skilled dentist, okay, any dentist can, can survive, okay, uh, but, but I in, know in, in, uh, from writing. You have a million manuscripts of novels floating around, okay, I'm sure there are marvels in there.
0: It's a treatment stand, only if you will be published, that's it. Well, that may be a little different with the internet question because the eyeball issue. The books get looked at by not very bright, uh, editors. Yeah, you're, uh, not right, you're right
1: about that.
0: And <laughs> stuff in blogs and online, and you know, Kevin Kelly's instead of publishing a book, is doing all this stuff basically as a sequence of blog items. Uh, there's a, and Chris Anderson did his book, The Long Tail, pretty much online before he did it as a book. I see. So there you're getting a much larger, it's more than a sample, you're getting a lot of human intelligence focused. Uh, on something you're interested in, or making a book which is both good and popular. Is, is that a different world? Uh, I think for nonfiction, in the world of ideas, in our
1: world, uh, you probably, the online reduce the randomness mm-hmm. of you know, if you're smart. I, like, this is how I did my first book, f- uh, full by random, nobody wanted to publish it. Nobody, all right? Because I have fictional characters in my book. Okay, and then you know, uh, and I have rejection letters. If you want, you know, I can, you know, show you. It's a lot of fun to read them. Okay, I, after the fact, they explain to you why they're not published, why it's going to be a flop. All right, and Full Barren sold hundreds of thousands of copies, so the the, uh, the the I left it on the web, and someone picked it up from the web. So so you you're you're right, but it was sort of like an idea book, an idea idea books ideas they they find their way, but novels. Or, or non-fiction is not the same. There you have, you, the, the, the consciousness, our consciousness, cannot harbor too much, too many uh, works of art. It's limited. That's what creates these uh, the power laws. It's too limited. Our consciousness is too narrow and getting narrower. This is why you have Harry Potter. Okay, <laughs> this is I show the English. And now everything is moving to the English language. California, something to do with California. So everything's concentrating, you see mm-hmm. in, in uh, 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 our, our knowledge of, of uh, lang- languages are dying by the minute and, and uh, because of extremistan, English is winner take all, they took everything and it's easier to communicate you know, in the same language.
0: Yet you're a polyglot and are comfortable Sorry? in ten languages or so. I'm not comfortable in ten languages.
1: I, I I'm I barely Six. speak English today. No, whatever. It's not <laughs> the languages don't. I mean, you read them. You don't. You don't, don't use them. But the idea of uh, uh, um, uh, first of all, languages survive by luck. Okay, English is probably the worst possible language. Okay, <laughs> to have as a world language, and it's mm-hmm. becoming. Uh, not English, bad English, it becomes the word language, Citibank English, you want to call it. Yeah. The, the uh, spreading, okay, because of a piece of luck and then start spreading, that's it. This is why we don't have uh, Esperanto or serbo uh, croatian as a word language, it's just a
0: piece yeah, of uh, luck. As they say, the language of science,
1: heavily accented English. Uh, Russian English, <laughs> the yeah, this is.
0: The, uh, but uh, yeah. you know, the perspective you bring, has a feeling to me of coming from enough different angles that your comfort in a number of different languages. Is that some part of your own mental heuristic that you can think more strangely than most? I, no, I'm just interested in languages because, uh, for example, I'm re- I was reading
1: the text, okay, uh, uh, when you see translations, they don't mean the same thing. Like, for example, uh, very simple. I'm interested in religion now. And, 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 and if you know a little bit of Greek, you just realize that uh, the credo doesn't mean I believe in God, a credo, a pisteo, pistevo means I, I trust, which is a complete different statement. So there's no statement of belief. Belief is something for extremely modern, and mm-hmm. it now it's translated into belief. So knowing languages sometimes allow you to see nuances in words, particularly Arabic is definitely a, a, a potent one because a lot of the, the medieval texts like come from, from from or went via Arabic or translated via Arabic, and you have a lot of mistranslation of uh, of, of things. Mm-hmm. What's your interest in religion? My interest in no, it's come. My, I have an interest in belief. Oh, right? Sorry, belief. Alright, belief because I don't think belief plays a role. Mm-hmm. Okay, belief is for entertainment. I think that at the end I was trying to explain to myself in the shower what what was it that I wanted to do next, and I tried to just realize that we're not that different from primates when you go to the zoo, mm-hmm. except for our brain, and it didn't go very far. So I mean, this I mean, you see it in daily life and stuff. So that's sort of my point. So and and we. So this is why I have an interest in belief is still uh, uh, skin deep. The other problem in religion is that I think that the mind does not like the vacuum, mm-hmm. to quote uh, someone else. but the, the, Our mind doesn't, uh, you I know, uh, <laughs> forgot. The, the does not like a vacuum. So you, instead of, you, you, religion has worked, I'm conservative, has worked for a long time to fill that vacuum. And it works a lot better than science
0: or so, modern science. So you're suggesting that one way of finessing and a lot of the illusions of rationality you've been talking about is basically belief. No, I mean, no my, my point about, no, I, I'm not, uh, 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 I don't recommend
1: religion, Tradition? I am saying, sorry? Tradition, would that do? I, I'm, I'm saying that, that if you remove religion from people's brains, they get into something vastly worse, nationalism could a lot more people, or economics, you know, something even, <laughs> stuff like, uh, so, so you have, so you got problems. So this is my, my, my or social science, or, or psychoanalysis, you see, so you might as well keep them to religion. And it comes back to a statement made that was uh, the esoteric, you know, the problem of, uh, of Averroes, which was taken by Spinoza later. Averroes said, uh, what, "What was he trying to do with uh, with religion?" Okay, he said it's very simple. If you explain Aristotle to the common person, he or she won't get it. So we got to tell him what to do. Therefore, religion plays a role. That was Averroes. Okay, the biggest thinker of medieval uh, Islam. Okay. And later on, it was taken by, by, uh, by Spinoza. It was an esoteric, exoteric, by saying the Bible is there for, uh, for a purpose because it's a good story for people who don't have the intellect to understand what I understand Spinoza. That was his, uh, his, his, his statement okay, uh, in, in different terms, of course. So the, the idea of religion for the masses, right? the opiate of the masses. Right? I remember when I said the, the, the stock market is the opiate for the middle class. I'd rather give them back their opiate. <laughs> right? I don't need it, but I want it. I'd rather give him that opiate than give him some other, uh, you know, opiate that's vastly more dangerous. That's my, that was my, My. but if you can do without, it's okay if you can,
0: right? Odds are people can't. Raises the question how you can be a skeptic without being a cynic. Do they go together? I, 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 I'm, I mean, people call me
1: iconoclastic, but I have some a huge devotion to some people like Mandelbrot or some other people so it's, I have different icons yeah. uh, but cynic I don't know I mean there's some people I despise and you say it I'm, I'm compromising it's easier to say to explain uncompromising say the things the way they are without mincing words and you stick to it so you, you, you get some heat it's okay All right, you keep sticking to it particularly that, that I was lucky not to have been an academic from the start hmm. because when you're an academic from the start you're socialized so you're afraid of offending this guy I have no Allegiance. Look, I have no you know no allegiance. So offend? that's okay. It's, you know. I give and then if I feel guilty I give money to charity, then I'm okay.
0: Right. <laughs> Question from Nicole Boyer. Um, how does focus on black swans affect quality of decision making? Does it increase paralysis or inaction? Uh ah, that's you? exactly the opposite. It makes you take a lot more risk in some domains.
1: I take a lot more risk in some domains. If you if you're aware of the black swan, focus your risk taking on some things, not others. It makes you a lot, take a lot more risk in tinkering trial and error and a lot less risk with when you rely on someone's opinion who can be a full expert. So it, so it makes me take a lot more risk. And a lot of, I take a lot of, lot of risks. I'm not afraid of, 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 of risks that some other people are and vice versa. Okay? I'm afraid of stock market, but I don't understand it. I don't think anybody else does, by the way, based on track record. So I don't take that risk. But there are other risks I take.
0: Okay, Kevin Kelly, who handles the questions, handed me one by himself. Gene therapy is a drastic unknown technology, for an example. We have millions of years of experience with breeding, in a sense, and maybe 8,000 years of serious breeding, and zero experience with engineering life. So Craig Venter will be here in a couple of weeks. Um, should we not dare engineer life? Should we be, do this, but don't dare predict it, to see what happens? Uh, c predict about possibilities, but don 't believe what our predictions say right. or d go ahead and predict okay i, I uh, uh, is there going to be dinner no I, I can't. <laughs> the,
1: the, the problem I have is i cannot i, I there 's so little I know I only talk about things i know
0: this if you subject, knew, would should we do something in that
1: i know I have no idea, but no i, I think i mean i 'm a I'm a skeptic and and a highly uh, paranoid skeptic all right with things i don 't understand, but i don 't want to you know, uh, make a statement on the subject, but I'm not familiar with the whole background. Okay. I don't know, but, but if you want to talk about invasions, I'd be ready to talk, but not this.
0: All right, let's go to one you know Neil Ferguson. Uh, Peter Schwartz here has a question. Uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, with his counterfactual histories, uses multiple interpretations of history, is allowing for invisible evidence to develop an alternative scenario. Is that a way of dealing with black swans? Yes, definitely.
1: um, He he and I are, are, I mean, uh, do the same thing. If you uh, have the same, you know... He's the the, the, the first person to understand my book. (laughs) He was the first person to write about my book and say, this guy, uh, uh, I felt understood after reading him. So he understands counterfactual history, alternative scenarios. You can't take the visible, you have to take invisible. What could have happened? Let's not stick to the observed. But whenever you have non observables that outcome wouldn't have happened, to have a richer view of history. So this is, this I agree. My view of counterfactual makes this even more, makes the interpretation of historical events even more fragile to error, okay, than, than so it's hard to be a historian. But, but I think I agree, with, from that standpoint, this, the counterfactual, yes, the introduction of counterfactual.
0: Um, probably most of this audience is going to vote tomorrow. We're having this... Uh election um, from the primaries what's looking statistically at voting what's what's your sense of what that's
1: all about i i i I haven't read the papers not in terms uh, of outcome just the event itself what is voting i I don't know i i i i I, I, there's so little i know all right Mm -hmm. but but what i know i know definitely i'm comfortable with i i I don't know nothing but i mean i'm not it's like a lot of people ask me about things. I have I no, no clue, and, and just in, in one of uh, thing in *The Black Swan*, I say, "Learn have the guts to say I don't know, right? This, I, I know nothing. I definitely will not vote for Hillary. If you want my hint, but I that. <laughs> so th- this is mine." So, yeah. who's that, that? Leave John McCain. Sorry, McCain. No, I'm not definitely. I, I know I'm not voting for. <laughs> but I don't know the rest. Romney? No. No, no. I don't. I'm definitely not making a statement, political statement here. you no, am not going to catch me. You can try. You can try all you want.
0: Just out of curiosity. I need a lot more.
1: To, uh, I need real drinks. You know. To, no, no.
0: <laughs> the, the, the ballot is secret. But how many here are voting for Romney? Wow. Okay. Good. A couple. How many for McCain? Okay. How many for Barack Obama? Oh, there we go. Mm -hmm. Not surprised. How many for Hillary Clinton? About half as many. Okay, so you see, I. I... Would you have predicted that? No, no. (laughs) Who? Ron Ron Paul. Paul, Ron Paul. (laughs) Right in. Is he still in it? No, definitely. I'm not voting for Ron Paul. That's. uh... How many can't vote? How many here can't vote? That's interesting. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. That's a good question. That's a lot of people. I'm sorry. Oh, this is, um, um, so the, the, the Lean on the person next to you and so see if you can change That tells me the, the proportion
1: r- of mathematicians <laughs> here, foreign mathematicians in the, in the crowd. For <laughs>
0: <laughs> so This was wonderful, Nassim. Thank, oh, thank you, you very so much. much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me.